And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Praise God, we are redeemed. I got to tell you a little bit of a story, and that is David sent that link to me of that song about three weeks ago and asked me to watch it. And uh, I wish I had the link. David, you probably put that in the newsletter. It's really a great video by Big Daddy Weed. And the, story, the background story is, is that Big Daddy is really big, probably about 400 pounds big. And uh, in 2009, he set on a journey to lose 90 pounds in, in 2009. That was his goal. And he got down in November and lost like 84 pounds. And he got on, excuse me, 80 pounds. He got on the scale the last time on December the 31st and, and lost 84 pounds. And, and he goes, I know that's nothing to sneeze at that much weight, but I felt failure. I felt once again I couldn't do it. And all this garbage. It came, it came a really dark time for him. And he's down in the garage one day and just really feeling very dark, depressed, failure, all of that. See, it happens to the best of people. And uh, it's like God spoke to his heart. And he said, Mike, when are you going to start believing what I said about you instead of what you said about you? He goes, Mike, I love the way you smile. I love the way you make people laugh. I love the way you see the best in people. Mike, you are redeemed. And brothers and sisters, friends, brothers and sisters, you need to know that. We have so, some of us who wrestle with self-image and things like that, we believe what the world and other people say, what we say about ourselves, and we lose the fact that we are redeemed. Amen. Aren't you glad for that? All right, I tell you. We'll, we'll try to get that video link for you because I've watched it about four times. Really, really very powerful. Boy, did he do a good job this morning presenting that wonderful truth. It's going to tie in the message toward the end, so hang on with that. Well, we're on a journey, aren't we? We're visiting different churches, okay? And we're in a, a series called Steeple Chase, and, and we're making a circuit of seven churches, seven distinct churches that were part of worthy churches in the book of the Revelation, uh, chapter 2 and chapter 3. And here's the deal. I, I finally wrote it down. I said this. You know, what if, and I always try to be careful people to say, what if there's a secret message in the Bible? But what if there really is, I think there is, by the way, what if there really is something that God wants to teach the church in the 21st century from seven churches that lived 2,000 years ago? None of them are in existence. And so, so we've been journeying. There's your map there. We started out in Ephesus. You can see it there. And in Ephesus, we learned about the fact that the Ephesus church had lost their first love. And the fact that, that, that um, God is about love. That, that you know, Jesus said the great commandment is this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And also you're supposed to love people. And so whatever is important to God, important to Jesus, is what we all do. So love isn't a byline. Love is what we are about. Amen? As a people of God. So, so the church of Ephesus had to relearn, so repent, and turn back to that love. Turn back to that love. Learn to love God radically and fanatically, and then learn to love people the same way. And then we went to Samaria, which is about a little bit north there. We went north, and, and Samaria didn't have a, a correction. I mean, it's a, it's a persecuted church, and all God said was good things about it. And I love this because he said these things. He said this. I know your tribulation. How would you know something? God knows what you're going through. God knows what you're going through right now in your life. No matter how difficult it is, God knows what's happening in your life. Rest in that. And then we learn the great truth also this, that God is not bound by time. In other words, he can move to the past, the present, and future freely. Okay, freely. I know it's kind of, it's the truth. Okay. And then he not only is not bound by time, he controls time. Because the, the church at Smyrna was going to be in persecution for 10 days. And that sets a set time. And no matter what you're going through, God has a time. And one day that bell's going to ring. And you're going to be set free from that tribulation. So know that God is not on vacation. He's not asleep. 
He's watching over you in your time of suffering and persecution. Now we're going to go about 20 miles north to Pergamum, or as some translations have it, and both are correct, Pergamus. Now, Pergamus, again, is a very so- sophisticated city, okay? And what we're going to talk about, though, today is standing firm. We're going to talk about because they had some real difficulties with some compromise that was going on in the church. So it was a very uh, sophisticated city. Um, had three or four. Now, I got I, there's two of these names I've really been working on this morning, okay? I want to try to get them right. I've spelled them out phonetically, okay? First is Zeus. That's easy, okay? And then you've got Athena, okay? And then you've got Dinebenes, okay? Dinebenes. And then you've got Asclepius. Asclepius. Now, that's the important one. That's the one I want you to talk about because Asclepius was the god of healing, okay? And see if this looks familiar. Does this look familiar to you? Throw that graphic up there, Nance. That's Nancy back there. You got it there? There you go. Does that look familiar? Okay. Now, often we say, oh, that's the, that's the brazen serpent noses. Uh-uh. No. You see, Asclepius was the god of healing. And that, the snake in the pole, was, was his emblem that he went by. That was what represented that god. And here's what's crazy. Um, many, many, many people flocked to Pergamos. Okay, because of that, they wanted to be healed. Okay, and so that was their big deal. People walk in, and you know, of all the of all the cities we studied so far, whether it be Ephesus or Smyrna or Pergamos, Pergamos most reminds me of the United States, and we're going to tie that in a couple of ways. Um, here's what it says on the Statue of Liberty, actually in a plaque in the museum there. Um, Bring me your tired, your poor. Your huddled masses yearning to breathe free. Remember that saying from the Statue of Liberty? And, and people went to, to Pergamos believing there was a God there that could help them. And people have flocked to America looking for, for peace and looking for freedom and looking for wealth, looking for the American dream. We're going to talk about that even today. So in Revelation, in chapter 2, verse number 12, here's what we start to read. Right to the angel of the church. Now, I really want to nail this down for you. The word church. Remember, it's the Greek word ekklesia. And it means called out ones. It means a congregation. It means a group of people. Specifically in this case, it's the called out ones. It's a group. It's the congregation that belong to Jesus Christ. I really want to dispel in your brain. I want the first thing that pops in your brain when you think church is not a building, but God's people. Okay, so it's ecclesia, a congregation or a group of people. So to that church, he says something. The one, capital one, is the Lord Jesus Christ. The one who has the sharp, double-edged sword says the following. Now, the double-edged sword, and of course this is Jesus Christ as described in chapter 1. The, the double-edged sword is really the word of God. It represents judgment. It represents power. It represents authority. And in Hebrews chapter 4, verse number 12, a very familiar scripture if you go to church a lot is this word. For the word of the Lord, for the Bible, for, for God's word is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword Piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow and as a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. So, so the author of Hebrews paints a picture of the word of God that the word of God is not only, not only powerful and strong, but it's alive. And, and that scripture and in the book of Revelation is described as a double-edged sword, one that cuts both ways. You know, for instance, it represents the God, the same God that created heaven, 
created hell. That the same God who said, for God so loved the world, we also know will one day speak judgment on those with unforgiven sins because of rejection of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ himself came to seek and to save that which was lost. But it will be Jesus Christ who acts as judge one day and sends those people to a place called hell. The, the, the Word of God is the same book that says the sort of salvation that whosoever will may come. For God did so love the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believes in should not perish but have everlasting life. That same book called the Bible declares that there's a day of judgment coming. And every person who rejects Jesus Christ as Savior, it's not about being Baptist or Methodist or Pentecostal or Catholic. It's not on how much you go to church or if you don't go to church. It's not how many times you've been dumped or not get done. It's not how much money you give. It's what you do with Jesus Christ. And that same book that says God loves and offers a way that you can have a relationship with Him through His Son, Jesus Christ, describes a time of judgment where every person who rejects Jesus Christ will be cast into a lake of fire to burn forever and ever and ever. It's a two-edged sword. It cuts both ways. But I want you to hear something today. If you're here today, and perhaps you kind of walked in the door, maybe you thought it was time to go to church, or somebody invited you. I don't know, but if you're here today, I want to tell something very emphatically. That God loves you an incredibly lot. Again, I've already said the verse twice. I'll say it one more time. For God so loved the world that He gave. He actually sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to take on human form. And He was born of a virgin. That's the first Christmas story. And He lived this pure, sinless life. And the whole purpose of Him coming, not a sideline, not a plan gone bad. The whole person coming was for Him to die. Because the Bible says, God's Word says, that the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. He came and took our place on the cross. He died for our sin. He endured the full wrath of God that would fall um, at the great white throne judgment. He endured all that that day. And whoever will, black, yellow, red, it does not matter. It doesn't matter what, how big you're a big sinner or a little sinner. It doesn't matter how good or bad you think that you are. That if you'll put your faith and trust what Jesus Christ did on a Roman cross 2,000 years ago, that you can, one, have forgiveness of sins. And two... Two, you've got a relationship with God. You can actually call the God of creation Father. How incredible is that? So this two-edged sword cuts both ways. There's a scripture, and I want to be very careful drawing scriptures from the Old Testament that's written to the nation of Israel, but it really describes what that looks like. It's Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 30 through 32. Here's what, here's what that looks like. He said, God says, therefore I will judge you, O house of Israel, everyone according to its ways. Repent. That means to be going in one direction and turn the other. Repent and turn from all your transgressions, all your sin, all your wrongdoings, so that iniquity will not be your ruin. Cast away from you all the transgressions which you have committed. And get, get yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. Boy, God takes care of that. When we come into relationship with God, He gives us a new heart. And the Holy Spirit, the new spirit, come and lives within us. For why should you die, O house of Israel? And I, God would call your name. Hey, Joe, why should you die? Hey, Sue, why should you die? Hey, hey uh, Ken, why should you die? Hey, Steve, why should you die? Judy, why should you die? Oh, why should you die, O house of Israel? For I have no pleasure in the death of one who dies, says the Lord. Therefore, turn 
and live. That book proclaims that too. And that's what, did you hear what, what Dave's saying about redemption? Did you hear what this Dave led us into worship today? That God wants to redeem you. God wants to forgive you and bring you to relationship. But the ball's in your court. You have to make that decision. So, so that is the one who speaks. The one who has the sharp, double-edged sword says these things. And he invites you to come. But then he goes further. And verse number 13 says this. I know where you live, where Satan's throne is. Now this is so powerful to me. And again, I'm talking to my brothers and sisters in Christ. And like you're not a Christ follower, listen in. You're welcome to take this home with you. But, but Jesus says to his church, to his ecclesia, he says... I know where you live. And you know, last week he said, I know your affliction. And that was so, I hope it brought comfort to you. Where you just lost your husband, you've lost a child, um, where you've lost your job, or you're sick and your body's hurting, or, or your marriage has gone south, your husband or wife has betrayed you. Jesus said last week, I know your tribulation. I understand, I've been there, I understand that, because I died on the cross. But then he said, I know where you live. And that is so powerful. In fact, he said, I know where you live, where Satan's throne is. Now, now a lot of theologians believe that, that this goddess I talked about, this, this Asepius, okay, this god of healing, that he was, she, he was the primary god in Pergamos, okay? And that was one of the great powers that lived in Pergamos. It was Satan's throne. Now, and it's interesting, by the way, what does it represent? You remember? Healing. Healing. I told you that Pergamos to me reminded me a lot of the nation of America, the United States. And I go back to what the Statue of Liberty says. You know, bring me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free. Does that not describe where Jesus said, come unto me, all ye who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. People came knocking on the door of America. And in the good old days when America was founded on Christian principles, it, it was the American dream, but the American dream involved so much of God. But not anymore. Not anymore. The masses come, the people come. And because America has stepped back and back and back and back from God. There's so many gods for us to worship in America. The God of prosperity, the God of materialism, uh, the God of popularity. Those kind of things. You know, it's hard to be a believer in America. It's hard. Why? Because there's so much to take the place of God. And, and that's what, I think that's what he's saying to Pergamos here. He's saying, I know where you live, where Satan's throne is. Because see, Satan offers people what only God can give. He offers a false peace, a false prosperity, and basically says this, I'll give you whatever you want, just follow me. And Satan's a God wannabe. A God wannabe. But he offers the world things and says, this will satisfy. And listen, you know this. Things don't satisfy. Nothing this world really satisfies. There's always an appetite that comes back for more and more and more. And the temptation is, even once we trust Christ, because we live in this, this environment, we have a tendency to go back 
and turn to things that we know don't satisfy. If I only had a better job, a little more money, a better car, a little more prestige. If I was a student and I went to high school, okay, I don't want to be president of student council. I don't want to be captain of the football team. But God, let's be in, at least be in the starting lineup. So whether it's Harrisburg High School or the middle school or whether it's a coal mine or a bank, it doesn't matter. There's such a strong temptation to turn from the one true God to the false gods that live in America. There's an incredible story. And it's true. Patrick Morley um, talks about it in his book, Walking with Christ and the Details of Life. He says some businessmen were on a trip to Haiti. And they met an incredible young man who deeply, deeply loved Jesus. Because they had such a relationship with him, they arranged for him to make a visit, a six-week visit, to the United States. So they flew him up, and here's a guy, here's a kid who had never slept between two clean sheets. Here's a kid who never had three meals in the same day. Here's a kid who didn't know what a McDonald's hamburger tastes like. And they brought him to this land of plenty. And they showed him, they took him to the theme parks. They showed him all the different places to eat. They showed him all the big cities of America. And for six weeks, he saw all this world called America had to offer. At the end of six weeks, they had a big banquet. And the businessmen got up and, and talked about how impressed they were with this young man. At the end of the banquet, they said, is there something you would like to say? Here's what he said. I want to thank you. For bringing me to America. It truly is a land of plenty. But I'm very thankful to go home. Because here it is hard to maintain my dependency on God. Has there ever been true words? Come on, believers. Let that speak to your heart. Don't we have a tendency to depend on Uncle Sam, our Social Security check, or our company retirement check, or this or that, instead of depending and leaning on the one true God? So in Pergamos, the tendency was to depend on other things. The, the tendency in Pergamos was to compromise. Compromise. Let me read you something from one of the commentaries I read that I thought was very powerful. Compromise with worldly mora- mor- morality and pagan doctrine was prevalent in the church, especially in the 3rd century. Can I read it again? I want you to get this. Compromise with worldly morality. Is that a problem in the church today? Some of you right now are sleeping with somebody. It's not your husband or wife. Some of you kids went out Friday night and went back to the car where you shouldn't have been. Some of you have seen junk that you shouldn't see. I'm not talking about movies. Listen, there's nothing wrong with clean movies. You're going to see a good clean movie tonight. I'm talking about pornography. You're putting that junk in your brain. So, compromise with worldly morality and pagan doctrine. Other words, man's rules, not God's rules. Is that a problem in the church today? Uh-huh. Was prevalent in the church, especially in the third century, here it is, when Christianity became popular. See, that's the problem in America. It's a popular thing. Well, it was. We're shifting. But it was a real popular thing to be a Christian. So, so a whole lot of the world, it's true in Paul's time, the, 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 the new believers had a tendency to bring their idolatry into the church. And so many people today, we brought too much of the world. Now, don't you dare grab that and say, yeah, that worldly music, don't you dare do that. You'd be wrong. 
I'm not talking about that. But we brought so much to the world and accept some things of the world in the church because it's popular to be a Christian. He goes on and says this. So compromise with, with pagan morality and departure from biblical faith soon corrupted the church. And that's what's happened in the 21st century. The church has become corrupted because we're so comfortable with sin. We're so comfortable with the things of the world. And add to that our dependency on things not God. And you got a mess. And that's what's occurring in the church at Pergamos. At least with some of them. Not all of them. At least with some of them. It was happening. And it's happening today. So he goes on and says this. Now, and you are holding on to my name. This wasn't the whole bunch. But there was a tendency in the church. But you are holding on to my name, he says. He's still doing positive. And did not deny your faith in me, even in the days of Antipas. And we do not know who Antipas was. But he was someone who died for his faith. I mean, can you imagine if I pointed to one of you guys and said that next week you wouldn't be here because you died for your faith? Not because you overate, not because you smoked, not because you had bad genes. But because someone took your life because of your faith that you're going to be Antipas? Woo! And Jesus said, man, you held on. Even when one of your members was killed, my faithful witness who was killed among you, where Satan lives. So, so there's, there's commendation here. But there's a problem. There's a problem. And it's aggravated because they live in Pergamos. And a country, a city where uh, the God, is, God lives that offers hope and healing. A counterfeit. Jesus. And there are a lot of counterfeit Jesus in America. And some of them have religion attached to their name. So Jesus says this. I have a few things against you. You have some there. No, it's not the whole church. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam. Who taught Balak. To place a stumbling block in front of the Israelites. Eat food sacrificed to idols. And to commit sexual immorality. And in the same way, you have also have those who hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Huh? Who, who in the world is Balaam? And who is Balak? And how does that apply to us today? Well, Balak was a Moab king. And the children of Israel were passing through his land. And he was very, very uncomfortable with that. So he finds a false prophet, not a prophet of God, a sorcerer, if you will, named Balaam. And he says, you come in and curse these people. And basically God said to him, Mr. Sorcerer, don't you do that. And he didn't, and he didn't, and he didn't. And this is all found in the book of Numbers, by the way. If you want to go back and find it, it starts around verse 20, or chapter 25. And so, apparently, and it's only recorded in chapter 31 later when you learn this, apparently Balaam said this to Balak. Listen, I can't curse these guys. But let me give you some advice. Why don't you have your Moab women come and entice the men of Israel? Have them invite them down to, to eat in our, our false worship, and our, our banquets. Have them do that. And then they'll fall in love with the Moab women and they'll marry them. 
And that's exactly what happened. And I think it was like 25,000 people ended up dying when God brought judgment on the nation of Israel. And what Balaam was basically saying was, teach the, teach the men of Israel to violate their conscience and to commit sexual sin. Now, how does that fit with us? Well, Paul addresses the first part, this violation of conscience, in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. We don't have time to talk about that, but you write that down, 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Because, see, Balaam knew, and Satan knows, the power of when you violate your conscience. Now, here's, what, here's an overview of what 1 Corinthians 8 says. Basically, it says this. Suppose you have, he said, first off, he says this. Now, we all know idols are nothing. A false god is not even a god. Come on, say Amen. A block of wood, a piece of stone, a false god is not really a god. It's just a pretend god. Paul says you ought to know that, and you know that. But let's say, for instance, we have this. Let's say at the church of Corinth, we have a person who used to worship these false gods. And then they meet Jesus. And they turn from their idolatry and start going to church. They've met Jesus, naturally you go to church. So... In their brain, they associate eating meat offered to idols with their worship because that's what they did before they became a Christian. So let's say that they're down there and then Deacon Joe. Deacon Joe knows that, that false gods are not even gods. So he goes down to the meat market and gets a wonderful cut of meat that was offered to idols. Now Deacon Joe knows there's nothing wrong with that meat because... Gods aren't, those fake gods aren't even real. So while he's at the meat market buying this chunk of meat for a really good price, by the way, the new Christian guy sees Deacon Joe. And he goes, what is Deacon Joe doing eating this meat? So he goes home and thinks about it and says, I think I'm going to get me a piece of meat. So he goes down to the meat market and buys him a big old steak. And he brings it home and grills it up, you know, Kingsford charcoal, the whole nine yards. And as he begins to eat this, his conscience starts following him. And he goes, this meat is offered to idols. I used to worship idols. I shouldn't be eating this meat. And all the shame and all the guilt of his conscience, was there anything wrong with eating the meat? No, but in his brain there was. And what happened was, Deacon Joe unknowingly caused his brother to stumble. So Paul says, be careful, don't cause these folks to stumble. And we know there's nothing wrong with it, but, but don't cause these folks to stumble. So the young believer is now just wrapped up in guilt. I'm a failure. How could God love me? And he hasn't even sinned. Let me tell you a story. Now, now I'm not going to give you an illustration, but I will too. I will too. Another person gets saved, because you need to hear this. Now, the Bible says that we are not to forsake the assembly of ourselves together. We ought to go to church. What the Bible doesn't say is how many times we ought to go. Okay? Now, we personally have three worship services, but the Bible doesn't say thou shalt attend all three services. Okay? So, because this guy's really fired up, he's a new believer, he goes to church Sunday morning, he goes to church Sunday night, and he goes to church Wednesday night. Okay, and then 
One day he sees Deacon Joe is not at church on Sunday night. And so he asks Deacon Joe, he says, where were you Sunday night? He goes, oh, I was home with the family. We're having family night. And the guy goes, oh, wow, that's Deacon Joe did it, I mean, you know. So he, the next Sunday night, decides to stay home. And he's trying to be with his family and all this I should be in church. God's probably up in heaven going, Thou shalt be in church on Sunday night. And he goes, I'm a failure. I'm a failure. Now, did staying home from church, was that a sin on Sunday night? No. But his conscience got him. And Deacon Joe unwittingly contributed to that. When our conscience is defiled, when our conscience is violated, it's trouble, folks. It's not a sin, it's trouble. Because what Satan will do, when you do something that's not a sin, but in your brain you may think it's halfway wrong or wrong, or perhaps some good mean Christian said, you should go to church three times a week, you should do this, you should do that. And when you don't do that, then man, you feel guilty. And when you feel guilty, you feel distant from God. Unfortunately, we Christians, we brothers and sisters... Love to help you feel guilty. Lord forbid you should miss church twice in a row because when you come back, we're not going to say we're glad to see you. We're going, where you been? Hello, can I have a witness? Where were you Wednesday night? Where were you? Why did you do this? I thought I saw your car parked there. So we, as believers, we help hurt one another with this guilty conscience thing. And I'm telling you, I honestly believe this is what hurts the church. No wonder so many Christians, new Christians fall out. They said, doggone, at least I didn't feel guilty before, but now I feel guilty. And they haven't even sinned, mind you. They haven't even sinned. And here's what happens. If that guilty conscience isn't resolved, if someone doesn't help him or he doesn't resolve it, he will sin. Because the first thing Balaam did was said, let's give them to violate their conscience. But that led to sexual sin. That led to sexual sin. The, the, the Israelite men married the Moabite women. Now, the way it worked out in Pergamos is this. There were, y'all can love this, there were religious prostitutes. I mean, you could go to the first church of Zeus and have sex with a prostitute as part of your worship. How crazy is that? So in that culture, do we have a crazy sexual culture in America? Uh-huh. You can't even watch commercials. So we got this crazy culture going on, like they did at Pergamos. And then we have someone, either it's taught falsely, or you buy into it on your own. It's happening. There are people who are teaching this, and there are people who are doing this in the church of Pergamos. So here's, here's the false teaching. Probably played out something like this. Perhaps the teacher said something like this. Jesus came to abolish the law. Now, that's not true. He said, in fact, I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. But Jesus came to abolish the law. Part of the law says, you shall not commit adultery. Because you're free from the law, you are free to have any sexual relationship that you want to have. And they did Is that true? Is that true? No, it's not true. No, it's not true. But they twisted teaching. You know what they were? 
They were grace abusers. You know, the big, the, the tag words are gospel and grace today. Let me tell you something. When you willfully sin in your life and you say, I'm under grace, you're a grace abuser. You are abusing the wonderful grace of God. If you're in an illicit relationship today and you're saying, I'm under grace, you're sinning and you're abusing the grace of God. And you're sitting here going, yeah, but I'm, I'm going to judge that person over here. I'm going to judge that person over there. I'm going to gossip about that person. You're grace abusers. Jesus Christ came that we may have dominion over sin, not freedom to sin. And this mess is going on in the church at Pergamos. Even though they were in great persecution, some teachers had rose up and said, oh, go ahead and use grace. After all, hey, your ticket's punched. You're going to heaven. Just do what you want to do. There's too much of that in America. There's too much of that in America. Again, Jesus Christ died to pay the penalty for my sin and lives in me that I might have freedom over sin. Not to live in the cesspool of sin. Never. Never. So we have this process of bodily consciousness. We have the process in the Pergamos Church of, of false teaching that says you're under grace. Just go ahead and do what you want to do. What do you suppose... Jesus said. What would Jesus say today under, with those circumstances going on? People violating their consciousness. Other people helping them violate their consciousness. Condemning them for their violated consciousness. People saying, I'm under grace, sin, sin, sin. And please hear me clearly. I'm concerned about sexual sin in the church. But I am so concerned about gossip and judgment. And bitterness and envy and jealousy. Because they all undermine the kingdom. Now, what did Jesus say? Look at verse 16. Therefore, repent. Repent. Turn around. Or otherwise, I will come. Now, now watch very carefully. I will come to you quickly. And that means suddenly. I will come to you suddenly and fight against them with the sword of my mouth. If you have an ear, you should listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. Do you see it? I will come to you and bring the sword against them. What do you think Jesus is saying there? First off, and I pray this is not true. I think Jesus is saying to the true believers, we should not be a part of compromise. The moment your pastor, who happens to be me at the moment, starts soft-selling sin, you better get yourself a new pastor. Let's take it front. When I quit preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ and the whole counsel of the word of God, you probably need to get yourself a new pastor. And I think that's what he's saying to the church of Pergamos. You need to repent. If, if, you are, if you're soft-settling, if you're peddling, if you're tolerating, then, then perhaps you need to repent. But the you and them really says something. I will come to you and speak to them. Will you hear me carefully? I'm fearful. And I'm just a country boy preacher. I know that. I am fearful that too many church people 
have somewhere in their past that some kind of prayer, and there's nothing wrong with the prayer if it's prayed from the heart. But prayed some kind of a prayer, got their ticket punched to heaven, and said, I can live like I want to now. And he hasn't called them a you. He calls them a them. I told you this before. You need to look back in your life when you that day that you trusted Jesus. Did you understand you were a sinner? Did you understand the need to turn from your sin? Did you understand the fact that, that there's nothing you could bring to the table that was all by God's amazing grace and what Jesus Christ did on the cross? Did you think that somehow that, that yeah, well, yeah, yeah, I know that's true, but I'll just add to it. You can't add to it. If you're here today and there's never been an acknowledgement of your sin and there's never been a turning from that sin, not perfection, turning from that sin, and there's never been a desire to follow Jesus Christ as Lord, I'm afraid you didn't get a relationship, you got religion. And America is filled with religion. The church at Pergamos had religious people. And whether it's Baptist, Southern Baptist, Independent Baptist, whether it's um, uh, non-denominational, Methodist, Presbyterian, Lutheran, Catholic, um, if I left you out, I'm sorry. Regardless of the denomination, there's one way to heaven. It's by the spilt blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And a sinner understanding he sinned against the holy God. And acknowledging that he must turn from his sin and follow Jesus. That is the one way to heaven. And Jesus. I think Jesus is saying that if you're up there and you're a grace abuser. And you think you can live in affairs. And you can do whatever you want to do. And I'm under grace. You might be a them. You may have a wonderful dose of religion. You may be a very nice person. But do you have salvation? Do you have salvation? So, he, he moves forward now and says, I will give the victor some of the hidden manna. To the yous, not the thems, to the you, the one who trusted Christ and is following Christ, the one who truly is a believer in Jesus, I will give them of the hidden manna. What I read, most likely it's a reference to Jesus saying, I am the bread of life. You know what bread does? It offers sustenance. It offers it offers food, fuel for the tank. It's what keeps the body alive. And the hidden manna is Jesus' way of eternal life. And he's saying, I am your sustenance. I am your bread. I am your energy. I am your power. Jesus says, I am your life. See, Jesus doesn't want to be a part of your life. Can I say it again? Jesus doesn't want to be a part of your life. He wants to be your life. He wants to be your life. So it says, to the victor, to the overcomer, I, I will give some of the hidden manna, the bread of life. And this is, oh, I will also give him a white stone. And on the stone, a new name is inscribed that no one knows except the one who receives it. And if this don't get your motor going, if this don't get your fire going, honey, your wood is too wet. I... Cannot with total authenticity tell you I know what this means. But I know what I read and I know what I believe. 
that name. That name is redeemed. It's redeemed. Did you read the, the words of the song? All my life I've been called unworthy, named by the voice of my shame and regret. But when I hear you whisper, child, lift your head, I remember, oh God, you're not done with you yet. I am redeemed. I'm redeemed. Come on, give me praise. I'm redeemed. See, God doesn't want you living in guilt. God doesn't want you living in shame. God doesn't want you waking up every day living in failure. But when you begin to understand you are a child of God, you're redeemed. All of a sudden, that illicit affair or the gossip or the lying becomes a foul taste in your mouth. And you want to get it out. When we truly understand what Jesus has done for us. He washed us. White as snow. Pure as wool. Redeemed. Not by our good works. Not by our ability to keep rules. Not because we're Baptists. Not because we go to church. Redeemed. I love what Andy said in the lesson today. If you think yourself a teeny tiny sinner, you're redeemed by the blood of Jesus. But if you have a history behind you. You want to hear about history behind you? You got some convictions? Have you been to jail? Are there some drug habits? Or alcohol? You got a big sin list? If you trusted Jesus Christ, you're redeemed. Woo! Woo! Redeemed. And that's the message I want you to take home today. If you trusted Christ, understand your redemption. As you understand your redemption, that, that illicit affair, those things, again, they become so untasteful. As you understand what He has done for you. You know, it wouldn't be a sermon unless I mentioned food. I already have. I've got bread in there. If they ever to make... An imitation pecan pie. The imitation will never taste like the real thing. And once you understand and taste the real thing, you'll never want a substitute. Child of God, once you start understanding it's not about religion. Come on now. Once you understand it's not about attending church. Once you understand what Jesus Christ really did for you on that cross and that you are redeemed, you won't settle for a substitute. You won't sell that junk that Satan sells that satisfies and it doesn't. Oh, child of God, you are redeemed. You've got a new name. It says redeemed. Not failure. Not failure. Not even sinner. Redeemed. Jesus, our good God said in Isaiah, come now, let us reason together. Though your sins were as scarlet. They shall be white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. Redeemed. Redeemed. If you're here today, and perhaps you've been in church. I, I was saved when I was 21. I came to Jesus at age 21. In church all my life. I told you this before. I was the guy you wanted your daughter to date. I didn't smoke, didn't chew, didn't do porn. I've, I've never smoked a cigarette. I've never tasted a cigar. And one time I had a sip of wine that mom gave me when she was basing the fruitcake. I was so moral, I stuck. But I didn't have Jesus. I was in a, when I got saved, I was in a very legalistic church, and I was keeping the rules. I even, I even had long hair when I went to this legalistic church. 
and seeking approval of them, I cut my hair. And see the fact? It never came back. Redeemed. When I met Jesus, oh, by the way, it's not perfection. Y'all know me too well for that. But redeemed. And we start understanding that, it changes everything. And if you're here today, and you've never experienced that, you may be a regular church attender, or you may well be here for the first time. What you heard this man sing about is what I'm trying to tell you about. That Jesus brings hope into your life. New life. Refreshing life. The last thing I want you to do is, is to make a profession to Christ and get under a bunch of rules. I want you to understand you're redeemed. You're free. When, when Jesus says, bring me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses, journey to breathe free. Jesus said, you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. Free. Jesus wants you to set you free. Now, I've got a friend, Brother Brent, will be standing down here and i got some friends who will be down here. You may, you, you may not be comfortable walking out in front of three or three hundred people. I don't know. But this is, this is our decision time. And I'm going to have everybody bow their heads in a minute. And we're going to sing. Dave's going to lead us in a song. And, and Brent's going to be waiting down front. And if you're here today and you've never trusted Christ, whether you've been here week in, week out, week in, week out, week in, week out, maybe God finally opened your eyes and said, wait a minute, whatever you've got, it's not, it's not, it's not a relationship. Come down and take Brent and say, Brent, I want, I want the real deal. And we have some friends who will show you what that means. Show you what it means. And if you've got questions, we'll try to answer your questions. Nothing down your throat. If you're here today for the first time and you're going, this is really different to me, Dwayne, that's cool. We'll be, try, we'll be glad to try to answer your questions during our decision time. If not, I'll be hanging around out back. Brent Dave will be hanging around. And we'll try to answer your questions about what does it mean to have a relationship with God. I want us who are redeemed to understand it. And I want you who have not been redeemed yet to experience it. Redeemed. Let's bow our heads, please. God, you're so good. You really are. You're a whole lot better than we deserve. I want to thank you that we're redeemed today. Thank you for the words that song. Father, for, for us as we struggle in this Pergamos called America, when there's so much temptation, there's so much uh, uh, a temptation to depend on others, things, and not you as believers, God, help us to see our redemption today. And let us pull us away from um, depending on this world. Father, help us to be free from a guilty conscience. Help us understand, Father, redemption. Father, if we've waddled our way into sin, and I'm not talking about an occasional sin, that needs to be confessed too, but I'm talking about, Father, those of us, those of them, Father's a lifestyle, whether it be adultery or whether it be gossip. That, God, you'll break those bonds that hold us and set us free. Set us free. Please, God, have your way in this time of decision. Thank you, Jesus. I pray in your name. Amen.